Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm your co-host, one of your co-hosts, in fact, Paul Anderson, here with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, how are you this week, sir? Um, pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. I feel that um, I've very much earned my place on the show this week because I've gone absolutely mad and tried to watch every single film that came out since the last time that we <laughs> recorded. But then getting in touch leading up to this one, I've discovered that you're kind of the opposite end of the scale, for once. I've gone this, completely this the other week. way this week, yeah, unfortunately, and managed to see uh, one new film yeah uh, that's it <laughs> I, I almost don't recognize you as the person that i know when you you come to me in the in the chat group and you say yeah actually i've not not really been watching uh watching the old films this week i've been doing other stuff in my life but yeah it means that between the two of us i think we've got things covered for this week's episode and uh, yeah looking forward to it as per usual um on the show, as you know, we always start in the same place. That is a place called In the Foyer. In the Foyer section is where we discuss film news from the past seven days. Paul, apart from not watching absolutely all the movies, um, is there film news that's come across your radar that you wanted to bring to the show today? Uh, yeah, yeah, there is, thankfully. So I've been keeping up with some film news, even if I haven't been watching some films, which is always nice. So yeah, this is the thing that people, um, anyone sort of with a passing interest in film will probably be aware of, is we seem to have... Um, a number of very well-respected auteur directors um, coming out, um, let, and let's say, not being 100% positive about uh, Marvel's comic book movie output. I think that's fair to say. So uh, Martin Scorsese's come out and said they're not cinema. Francis Ford Coppola has come out and said he was Scorsese was being kind. They're not cinema. They're despicable. Um, and you mentioned to me something, Pete, that Ken Loach has, Ken Loach has waded into this. Yes, indeed. Uh, Ken Loach's new film comes out this week. I'm actually going to preview later on on the day of recording today um which is sorry we missed you but yeah ken loach has come out and said that um the comic book movies i think at large have nothing in common with the art of cinema or something along those lines i don't think that's a verbatim quote but that's that's the essence of what ken loach had to add to this debate this kind of ongoing or growing debate about the value or otherwise of comic book movies that started with a sort of value judgment on marvel movies um with the scorsese issue which which sort of came to the surface, what, like a week or, or so ago. Um, yeah, it was an interview with Empire Magazine, I think, where he was asked about kind of what he thought of them, and that came up. So, I mean, well, you're probably the best person to start with here. Um, at least, I don't want to make assumptions, but I would assume, uh, having said that, that you would have some defence prepared uh, for Marvel movies, comic book movies at large. Or, like, how are you feeling? I shouldn't put words in your mouth. How are you feeling about this I mean, this debate running? You know, I, th I think it's... If you look back over the course of time, there's always been uh, commercially successful genres of films, um, and there's always been good and bad films in those genres. In in all fairness, and I don't think comic book movies are any any different to that, really. There, you know, and I think uh, it was Coppola that said if people are just going to see the same movie time and time again, and and that criticism, you know, you can certainly level at some of the more generic superhero films, some of the. The, the not as good Marvel output does feel quite samey in places. I can't really argue with that. But then you've got things like James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy, which feels very different, plays it for comedy. Thor Ragnarok again played it straight down for comedy. So they're very different films. So I don't entirely agree with with where they're coming from, in, in all honesty. I can I can see the criticism of the films. I can understand that. And obviously they're entitled to their opinions. Um, and I think it, we have a problem. We may have a problem if these are the only films, these are the only films that people are watching. Um that that is when we may have a problem if this is the only output in the cinema so i can kind of see that side of it pete what are your thoughts yeah i mean 
there are sort of two gut reactions that I have to it. And, and I think that the truth is sort of somewhere between the two things, to be quite honest. Um, and I said as much on Twitter this week, which is that, yeah, on the one hand, um, you can scoff at the likes of Scorsese and particularly Ken Loach, certain people, and say, you know, you're out of touch and you're old and your time's passed and this is the new normal and these movies entertain a lot of people. Clearly they do. They have huge numbers of fans. They bring people to the cinema, people who otherwise, to be honest, might not go out to the mm. cinema if that content wasn't there. Um, and like you've just reeled off, you know, a short list of a few films that don't do just the generic comic book bombast robots punching robots type stuff that we might be used to, right? Um, and, and actually have better writers, better actors, better producers and so on involved in those productions. But on the other hand, I guess um, the... That's not even film snob in me, but just film fan in me feels the absolute essence of truth or the 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 grain of truth in these criticisms, which is that, you know, cinemas and particularly multiplex cinemas have been deluged with huge budgeted blockbuster superhero comic book movies over the last 15 to sort of 20 years, perhaps 15 to 20 years, um, which have changed the landscape. And that's not to say, you know, those movies have no value, but it's also at the same time to be able to think um, with some sense of ambivalence where there's damage done because there aren't the screen spaces available for smaller productions perhaps even mid-budget films are squeezed out of the cinema because at the end of the day more and more and more it's become a case of making as much money as possible and not worrying too much about a curation of a sort of artistic output on the part of you know the, the people who who bring those films to the cinemas and the cinemas themselves let's be honest the chains that dominate now the sort of weather spoons of cinemas yeah. that we have in our country at least and i'm sure in different guises across the world so i i think i've i've sort of feel both things at the same time i'm not the biggest comic book guy or excuse me comic book adaptation to the big screen guy as you're well aware and listeners are well aware but at the same time i'm not out here hating on them and and saying that they shouldn't be in theaters i'd love it if there was maybe sometimes a little bit more balance and theaters would take a little bit more of a risk or have yeah, a bit I more faith completely agree in promoting yeah. i completely projects, agree with you there yeah. because the, the issue we have is and i mean disney disney have responded james gunn's responded james gunn's response on instagram is quite is quite good actually so that's worth a read i won't read it out now because they're his words so um but disney have responded in saying actually these films bob Iger went has got sort of bounced back and gone well these films make money and if these films make money it means we can invest money in smaller films i don't entirely believe that statement in all honesty and i think you're right the issue is sometimes you kind of you're looking to see a film uh, at your local cinema and there might be only one local cinema and then suddenly you've got five screens with five screens with the same two films on um and you're squeezing out you're squeezing out like not necessarily better films just other films that won't get a chance at a cinematic release at all so i think there's the swings and roundabouts to both of them but should they be considered cinema i think they absolutely should they are just a different genre a genre of film i guess um yeah, I think there's place. There's place for all of. There's a place for all of it for sure. Yeah, I mean that's that's the key though, isn't it? When we say there's a place for all of it, hopefully there is a place yeah, for all yeah. of it because there could be a future where there simply isn't a place for some of it. And I think that's the likes of Ken Loach are worried about maybe that future that they see sort of around around the corner. But like something I haven't shoehorned into our show for a little while, so I might take the opportunity now is drawing some kind of analogy between one of my favourite sports, MMA, and uh, cinema, which is like one of my favourite pursuits outside of <laughs> MMA, I guess. And the reason I bring it up is because in, uh, for example, the dominant um, uh, 
fight organization, let's say uh, the UFC, there's often statements made by Dana White and the powers that be that X fighter, certain fighter, isn't being pushed by the company because they don't move the needle, Mm. meaning they don't generate enough excitement or interest. Just like you might say that cinema chains might think, well, I'm not going to, or we're not going to overly promote the next Ken Loach film because it's really not going to move the needle in terms of major profit for that organization, right? But it's a sort of chicken and egg situation because if you don't promote something, it's much less likely to move the needle, right? In both the case of fight promotion and film promotion. And so when you look at the amount of, you know, the giant mind-boggling amounts of, of pounds and dollars that are used to promote every new iteration of a comic book franchise compared to the amount of marketing money that's put aside for smaller indie human stories, whatever you want to call the other side of this particular coin, yeah. it it's almost inevitable. It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that these giant behemoth films are going to, you know, hoover up all the profits of the cinema and continue to retain the lion's share of, of you know, uh, residents within those places. So it's hard to see the situation changing until some kind of bubble burst moment where people don't want to fork out for comic book adapt- adapted. But then I sequel. think I, I think whether you, whether it's comic book adaptations or whether it's another genre, I think you'll find yourself in the same boat. So I don't think it's specifically comic book movies. It is at the moment, but I can just I can see there like you know. As I said to you earlier, westerns used to be hugely popular, so they made a lot of westerns. Mm. So I can see it being one genre or another. Um, and I don't, if you see where I'm coming from, I don't think it's specifically comic book films. I think that happens to be the flavour of the month at the moment. And it, to be fair, it seems to have legs. Yeah, but. I was just going to say, don't you think? And and I mean, the counter to this, I guess, is people like Taika, uh, Taika Waititi being involved in in that world. But I guess you could make the argument that um, when you think about Western movies, you think about uh, Sergio Leone or, or like great Western directors who could be put yeah. into that category of cinematic auteurs. But I think people who are maybe a bit more anti sort of comic book movies superhero movies on the big screen feel like it's that sort of group think you know um focus grouped nature of those movies that Mm. disconnects them from the heritage of sort of other genres that you might you know talk about in the in the same conversation so i think you're absolutely right like things you know the tides change and different genres come to the fore but at the same time maybe it's something that gets under people's skin certain people's skin about movies that are made by yeah a giant sort of marketing think tank seemingly in some cases yeah Yeah. and don't get me wrong some are but not all of of them are and at the same time you look but you've you know, you look back and took, taking Westerns as an example again, you look back and you can you can cite those directors, but for all those directors, for all the films they made, there's a hundred poor Westerns mm. out there that were just made to put bombs on seats. Yeah, so course. I don't think the situation has changed that much. I just think the genre has changed, personally. Yeah. yeah, and and I mean, I suppose to cap this thing off then, where do you see this... Hmm. In terms of Marvel and DC, of course, being at the fore of these cinematic universes that do incredibly well, incredibly good numbers, are you anticipating any kind of downward trend or do you think that this thing's going to roll and roll for years to come like as a fan of the genre loosely speaking do you see um a sort of increase in presence at the cinema things being plateaued in the position that they are now or any kind of drop off uh i've been from my personal perspective specifically relating to the mcu in this case after endgame i could i think i mentioned this at the time i feel like i could have like five years off of these films now because i feel that that wrapped up the storyline that wrapped up the storyline and i feel like i could take a break so i'm kind of and I forgot. I was very kind of nonplussed with the latest with the latest Spider Man release, 
Um, so for me, the bubble's kind of bursting. Obviously, we review them on the show, so we will go and see them. Um, we'll go and see the big releases. If it wasn't for doing the show, would I go and see them? I don't know if I'd rush to them going forward. However, obviously, I don't speak for the masses. I think at some point, I think it will change. I think people that have been expecting people to be wary, to be sort of bored of them by now, and the, the sort of the juggernaut keeps rolling. Um, so we'll, I'd be intrigued to see where it goes. I think at some point it will inevitably drop off and something will, something will take its place, but we're not there yet. Yeah. And I mean, I think you're right about the sort of cyclical nature of things because with the, uh, you know, increased ubiquity of, uh, superhero style movies at the cinema, you get an increased backlash from people who feel aggrieved that we're just getting this yeah. and more and more and more and more. Having said that in the world that we live in now with social media being as central as it is, a backlash just creates increased conversation between the people backlashing and the people defending those movies which means they do great numbers in social media which means they do big numbers online which means they're still relevant which means they carry on so yeah until (laughs) the the balance is tipped I think we're going to see you know more of the same for a while then the situation tends to eat itself and we get a new thing you know like think about I don't know why this comes to mind talking to you Paul but maybe it'll make sense think about the way in which we get cycles in music and at the moment we're all being uh, presented with this run of sort of ordinary looking singer songwriter white males who write you know yeah. fairly <laughs> standard songs but seem to garner amazing amounts of praise and success really quickly I mean that'll eat itself too and soon the next you know Skrillex yeah. or whatever, wherever we're going next I don't know or there'll be there'll be there'll be a bunch of Vanfield indie bands on the horizon. I can see that coming back into fashion. Yeah, right. So so, right. so yeah, perhaps yeah. this is a load of bluster, and in a bit it'll all blow over, and we'll be on to the next thing, and we can debate how there's yeah. how there's too many rom coms or whatever it's going to be. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, um, yeah, good to chat about, it. and we'll come back to it on the show. Obviously, it's the kind of thing at the moment that people seem to be circling back to a lot. Um, having said that, we need to get out of this section and into the next section of our show where we review films that we. We've seen in sort of short form over the last seven days that's the section called popcorn movies and it's right after this and back we are with popcorn movies this is the section of the show where myself and pete discuss films that we've been watching in the week they can be any age any genre just anything we've seen really uh pete do you want to go first yes i'm going to give you a choice though man do you want me to uh, go with the absolute diamond first or last Mm, last okay i'll save that one right in that case, I can pile through my first review pretty quickly. This is Zombieland Double Tap, which came out on wide release this week. It is Ruben Fleischer's follow-up to Zombieland from what we established last week is like fully 10 years ago. Yeah, it came out uh, when I was at 2009. Uh, the fact that it came out in 2009 is self-referentially uh, mentioned in the film in, with hilarious consequences. Um, yes, <laughs> from the tone of my voice, you might realise that I did not like Zombieland Double Tap. I didn't really like it at all, if I'm honest. Um <laughs> This feels like one of those sequels that does not need to exist. Um, I don't know that anyone was clamouring for a, a sequel. I now realise, you know, because when we did the preview, I think I was a bit more enthusiastic. Like, oh, Zombieland, that was not bad. You know what I realised sitting in the cinema pool? I liked the film Adventureland. I didn't particularly like the film Zombieland. <laughs> and I think in my head they've kind of muddied together. Because Jesse Eisenberg's uh, in both of them. 
Exactly right. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I remember Zombieland as this sort of um, yeah wannabe kind of avant-garde uh, zombie thing where they do things like putting um, words up on the screen during the action. How does the film start, Paul? Zombieland Double Tap. It starts with one of the ugliest opening title sequences I have seen in many a year. Here you have the main characters fending off zombies in a kind of stylized Zack Schneider-y type of situation scene. Um, and then the names of those actors are in a sort of 2009 is favourable, like 1996 kind of a neon light font on the screen in three dimensions. <laughs> and then just like an old 90s screensaver, when the characters make contact with those letters, they sort of bounce off and scatter across the screen. It's horrendous. And this is out in 2019. It looks awful. Sets the, this thing up. So, I mean... To, to recommend the film, there are a couple of things. There is Rosario Dawson killing zombies on a monster truck. Okay. Yes, please. <laughs> yep. This was good. Uh, there is a very, very brief sequence in which Thomas Middleditch and um, Luke Wilson come in as characters who are very similar to the uh, Eisenberg character. I saw that in the trailer and didn't think it looked particularly funny, if I'm honest, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to finish that that thought, like, yeah, the Woody Harrelson character and the Eisenberg character are these stereotypes. Woody Harrelson is a kind of outdoorsy alpha male guy who wants to, you know, uh, he says something like, "Not you need to nut up to get something done. Shut up or nut up or shut up. Nut up or shut up. I think phrase. that was the quote, yeah. Yeah, and Jesse Eisenberg, as he is want to be, is a kind of fussy, um, fidgety kind of fella who who is very much like a beta male and makes lists. And then Thomas Middleditch is the sort of doppelganger to Eisenberg and Luke Wilson's the doppelganger to Harrelson. And it's not particularly funny, but I enjoy the presence of those actors for the short time that they're in it. The thing is, like many of the ideas in this film, they have the idea, it plays out for a few minutes, then they kill it off and it doesn't connect with anything else. But more than anything, what I dislike about this movie is there is a character played by the actress Zoe Deutsch who comes in uh, fairly early on as essentially um, the figure of a figure of fun who is um, a very attractive Zoe Deutsch very attractive obviously it comes with the territory um, a very attractive character who is played here as stupid bimbo and for a disproportionate amount of this film, I don't even know what would be a reasonable proportion of a film to, to just like make jokes about being someone being sexually attractive and stupid and disposable. That is what Ruben Fleischer and the boys do. Um, it, it, I, it, I don't know. I don't know if I'm being a snowflake, but it really bothered me. It really bothered me a lot. And everyone's in on it. Like everybody gets lines that are all pointed lines about look at this dumb bitch, like when she going to die, essentially, which I just I just find uncomfortable in this day and age, you know. So, yeah, n nothing really works. Nothing really is woven together with any artistry in this movie. It doesn't need to exist. And I was glad when it was over. Um, and we don't need a, a triple tap. And just to confirm from our preview, there is certainly the sense that double tap is referring also to social media. Uh, okay. That's the yep. kind of film this is. Yeah, you, you don't want any part of this. I mean, if you see it, that's on you, Paul. No, I What's, mean, I'm, uh, I'm not in a rush. As I said, I never rated the original particularly highly anyway, so I haven't been in a rush to see this, hence why I haven't haven't seen it. So, uh, good. Yeah, I'm, I wouldn't worry I'm about glad. it. It sounds like I've dodged a bullet, so thank you. <laughs> what have you got first uh, this What week? I've got first this week is... Um, Jackass, or in, or in this particular case, Jackass 3 or Jackass 3D. Um, I haven't watched any Jackass for quite some time, so I was being intrigued to see how well um, Johnny Knoxville and Chum's um, 
antics, shall we say, uh, would hold up. Um, and it was a pleasure to say, I still love Jackass, I'll be honest. It's very, very silly. Uh, Knoxville is an incredibly, I, I think, charming leading man and a man that's very difficult not to laugh with um, and certainly laugh at at times. I think there is, in some of the sketches, um, there is a lot more creativity. In, I say, I would say in some of them, there's quite a lot of creativity that doesn't, or they don't always get credited with um, because I think a lot of people focus on the, the scatological humour, of which there's a lot of it, don't get me wrong. There's some pretty disgusting scenes here. Um, but I just think that the whole thing has kind of like a sense of sort of old fashioned circus performers to it. Like there's there's a lot of fun in what they do and they're, they're definitely setting out to entertain. You know, they're, they're doing it for their own entertainment as well, for sure. But they're, they're definitely aware of the audience. And I just think the, the whole thing. And I think, that, yeah, I just think a lot of the sketches in in this is this was the third movie. Yeah. Jackass 3D was the third one. Um, I think it's I think it stands the test of time. And I think for the most part, they're very, very funny, um, especially the giant high five hand um, that knocks over one of the guys. They, they actually, <laughs> yeah, they actually, I remember that sequence. They, basically, precisely. they ring this guy and they're like, dude, can you bring us a tray of soups in, please? And it's just like, who the hell fell for that when the Jackass guys are asking you for a tray of soups? And then this giant, like this giant sort of powered high hand just knocks him, knocks him on his ass. It's hilarious. Like there's there's a lot of good stuff in Jackass, and I'm very fond and, of them. Unless I'm mistaken, isn't Ryan Dunn still on the scene in in the third Jackass? Yes, movie? yes, yeah. he is. So it yeah. it feels like to me, Jackass three felt like a sort of pinnacle, like a peak for those guys before things took some some well, difficult turns. It was, it was interesting because I watched it with my obviously yeah Ryan Dunn tragically tragically lost. Um, and I was watching it with my wife and my wife had done some reading on it. And apparently when they shot the previous films, there was beer on set. As you can imagine, there was a lot of drinking involved to do some of the fucking, quite frankly, really painful shit that they do to themselves. And when they were filming Jackass 3, because Steve-O basically had gone into rehab and was drying out, so he wasn't drinking anymore, there was no beer on set for anyone. So they were saying that actually a lot of the time when they were doing these stunts, and you can see it in Steve-O's face at certain points, so they're like, they're all doing these stunts completely sober. And that they were, and I think the more I was reading this interview, they were like, it was just shit to film it. Like, it was just hurt. <laughs> like, so Yeah, fear. Yeah. Just yeah. real sober, <laughs> stone cold fear, sober yeah. fear. Yeah, absolutely. So no, it was a lot of fun. Jackass remains. Yeah, Jackass. I always have a soft spot in my heart for Jackass. So yeah, it was nice to nice to re nice to rewatch it. Pete, what's up next for you? So next for me is uh, another wide release. This one being official secrets, official secrets from director Gavin Hood, who's made things like Rendition and I in the Sky. We previewed it last week um, with the interesting caveat that, of course, a lot of this. Um, the events of the film are centred on the town of Cheltenham, which is actually where I live and where, Paul, you, you used to live, of course. And um, where we are is in the year 2003, just prior, in the early part of 2003, just prior to the invasion of the, uh, of Iraq, uh, headed by, of course, the Bush administration and our own Tony Blair. Um, the story is a true story. And at the centre of that story is a uh, young woman working, I think she was 29 years old at the time, working for GCHQ in Cheltenham. Um, and it was a job that she took having done work previously as a translator and teacher in, I believe in the in this story as it was told on the screen anyway, uh, from Japanese to English, although she seems to speak Mandarin, I think, in, in the movie. Uh, that person is played by the actress Kira Knightley. And what she is presented with is a memo at work at GCHQ that contains information, top secret information, uh, in relation to the way in which the United
United States is going to apply pressure to certain United Nations members in order to uh, bring about the justification for the military action on Iraq in the name of, at the time, as we all remember, or if you're old enough, you'll remember um, the name of weapons of mass destruction, the WMDs that were being searched for and searched for and definitely did exist, even though we didn't didn't see (laughs) any evidence of them existing. We were all 100% convinced that they were there somewhere. Um, Yeah, so uh, to cut a long story short, this is uh, anchored by a pretty strong performance from Keira Knightley, a pretty committed performance from her. It struck me that the film... um, to someone like you or uh, or myself, Paul, this might come across a little bit handholdy um, because of the fact that we would have been sort of university age at the time of these events and therefore fairly, I would imagine, engaged with the basic machinations mm. of the situation, right? Um, However, I don't know that that discredits the film at all. I think this felt like material that would be really useful to show to, for example, GCSE age-ish students of uh, politics, you know, uh, students of current affairs and politics, because it does a really good job of sort of um, episodically walking you through the key conversations that took place between um, members of the GCHQ administration, members of uh, government organisations and um, the key players in the situation here, I think. The performances are pretty strong across the board, including an appearance from Ray Fiennes later in the film, which is pretty good. Um, I think, yeah, like I say, it just does a good job of telling the story. Having said all that, it did feel a little bit televisual at times. Mm. A lot of the film is um, conversations happening in enclosed spaces. Um, That's going to turn some people off. There's not a lot of bombast or action here not that you'd necessarily expect it but even in terms of like framing the invasion of Iraq that uh, stock footage is kept to a minimum here okay so so sometimes that can be to the benefit of the film it moves forward at a pace and sometimes it can feel a little bit um, not anchored exactly by some of the uh, more Uh, like the grittier elements of the real world um, consequences of these decisions that are being made. But yeah, what we get, I think, is a pretty faithful telling of the story. And I think, you know, it's it's well worth um, well worth a look for people who have an interest in, like I say, current affairs and particularly that critical time in history when let's not forget, um, I was one of the people amongst depending on who you believe, well over a million people who descended on London to protest the Iraq war. And that protest is right you know front and center in this in this film so it was yeah it was really interesting watch actually that's official secrets which is still on wide release now cool i'll check it out i really liked eye in the sky actually his previous i think that was gavin hood's last well one of his previous films. yeah i really enjoyed that so i, I think i think sort of capable is um the adjective i'd use for gavin hood as a director and that's sort of like a, a pro and a con i suppose i don't think i've been blown away by any of his stuff but i think i've felt that all of it is of a particular sort of quality you know a, a decent quality like we kept saying of, with exception of wolverine <laughs> yeah sure I, yeah i suppose i mean the stuff that's been more like military based and kind yeah. of current affairs based and that kind of stuff yeah, so maybe that's yeah, yeah. his his strong suit really so yeah, yeah that, that's official secrets what else have you got this week paul uh so i've got a film that actually for thinking about it we we did um top five tv films based on tv shows last week and that got me thinking after the podcast um, and I was just like, actually, maybe this, maybe someone that was missed off, maybe there's someone that I want to rewatch. Um, and 21 Jump Street uh, came up. The um, who directed 21 Jump Street? Now this is going to be this is going to 
hurt me, isn't it, when I don't do enough preparation? Yeah, uh, no one else knows it. who directed anything, though. We have to remember no, that on this no, show. That's true, yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. Uh, yeah, so this is the, the re- fairly recent reboot, I would say. What year did this come out? This came out in... No one knows when things came out, No Paul. one knows when things came out either, yeah. <laughs> it's good. I don't need to really know any of this. This came out in 2012 and stars... Uh, Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum. It is a reboot of an 80s TV series that had Johnny Depp in it about two undercover police officers who get sent back to school. Um, I'll be honest, I don't know. This is, I think, probably about the fourth or fifth time I've seen this film now, um, so I should know who directed it, really. Um, like, this, for me, still may, still maintains its quality. I think it was such a pleasant surprise for me when it came out. I think I, I, think I would say it would be fair to say that a lot of people kind of have written this off before it even was released in the cinemas because we're like, oh, no, they're just rebooting an old TV series again. How good can this actually be? I think Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum's chemistry together is fantastic, um, and the script is very, very sharply written, um, and the film stands up really well for me. Are you about to save me with the director? I, I am, and, and I think you're going you're to kick yourself. It's Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. Oh, I am going to kick myself. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I'm going to kick myself for that for sure. So, I mean, that yeah, that speaks volumes, really, to be honest, um, because they're very talented guys. Yeah, I think the film stands up remarkably well. I still think it's very, very funny. Um, there's a lot. It's a lot cleverer um, than I think a lot of people would have given it credit to be. Pete, you've, you've seen this, I take it. Yeah, I have. And I was just thinking, you know, if only we'd done a list recently where really good uh, TV shows turned into movies <laughs> yeah. were relevant. But yeah, it, did, it didn't make our list, did it? Either of no. us, 21 Jump Street. No. But um, I, I basically agree with you, man. Like, I, I found it, maybe I don't think about it that often, or like, maybe I can't quote yeah. that many lines from it, but it was a good, entertaining movie and like, better than I expected. So yeah. yeah and the sequel, the, the sequel is surprisingly funny as well, actually. That it kind of is, yeah. Pretty yeah, well I agree. Well, so. Yeah, that's 21 Jump Street. Uh, sorry for Lord and Christopher Miller. I will remember your names in future. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yes, I said I'd save the best till last then on your request. The absolute diamond here. So uh, this movie, Paul, I'm going to say it right now, bold statement. It will be in my top 10 at the end of the year. I have absolutely no doubts okay. about that. Uh, the film that I'm talking about is The Farewell. Uh, the Farewell is a film that I missed Ooh, I out on a couple, yeah. couple of weeks ago on preview. And then I saw it with my wife because we returned to the cinema where we got married for... Um, a sort of trip down memory lane a year ago married in a cinema this year we sat and we watched this film The Farewell hoping that it wasn't like some horrible letdown that was then going to kind of spoil the atmosphere this one is a film directed by uh, Lulu Wang and it is based on the autobiographical story that she originally wrote and narrated for This American Life the massively successful yeah. radio show and podcast in 2016 so it turns out that Lulu Wang was having a really hard time getting this project financed because financiers were looking at it and saying things along the lines of so you're going to go with an all Chinese cast that's going to be an incredibly tough sell you need to include white actors otherwise we're not going to finance this movie and basically griping about the project that she wanted to release to the public she didn't want to compromise so what she did is she put together a version of this autobiographical story which is all about how um, she was a um, as a child moved from China at age six over to America in her in her case Miami in the movie the character moves to New York and there she grew up her whole life until a moment where she had to return to China with her family because her grandmother had got sick Nai Nai is the name given to her grandmother in the movie uh, had got sick and in fact had cancer but within Chinese tradition um, I've learned from this film and talking to people since um, 
it is quite common when a family member, particularly an older family member, gets a serious illness, that the family will keep that information from that person, with okay. the idea being that if you um, are taking the emotional burden, as I think it's put at one point in the film, if you take that emo- emotional burden, you give that person more chance of surviving. And if they yeah. are indeed to die from the condition, at least they die you know, blissfully ignorant mm. rather than, than scared and, and miserable. So um, a pretty compelling idea, as I say, it based on her actual life and lived mm. experience. And finally, after this American Life uh, story went out, it was picked up for distribution following uh, Sundance Film Festival in 2019 by A24. And A24 had never before released a PG certificate movie. This is the first one. Okay. Um, th- this is a phenomenal piece of work an absolutely phenomenal piece of work one of those films that you leave and you think i'm not sure i could better anything about that movie or i could improve on anything not because i'm some skilled filmmaker but i mean even hypothetically i don't know how i tell this story better at the center of the story um the the character who sort of represents lulu wang is aquafina aquafina who of course was in crazy rich asians was really good also has got uh some rap stuff on youtube that you should check out um i would say anyway (laughs) uh really cool really cool uh, sort of savvy actress but here i don't think she's ever been better because she has to do funny she has to do deadpan but she also has to do some incredibly tender serious acting because you have this direct clash between her being raised as an american and having an american sensibility and looking from the outside like a western audience like myself you know for for the most part and thinking not telling someone who's sick that they're sick feels cruel and it feels cheap and it feels unfair and then the film slowly sort of unwraps the reasoning behind that way of thinking, I guess. But it manages to do it in this way that sort of whips you along in um, an entertaining, sort of at times heartbreaking, really moving um, series of events. And then the director herself has flourishes like, really simple thing, but there's a, a wedding organised in China as the front for everyone going to China. So grandma can't know that the whole right. family's descending on, on her town because she's dying, possibly. So they have to have, she has to have some other justification. So they say, ah, yes, um, this uh, one uh, grandchild of yours, he's getting married. He's getting married. He lives in Japan. He's getting married to a Japanese girl. They've only known each other a few months, but we'll say it's been a year. We'll have a wedding. Fantastic. And at that wedding, the guy who is the groom for this basically sham wedding is really struggling to hold it together. And then he starts drinking. And as we all know, when you start drinking, keeping your emotions under wraps is ever (laughs) and ever more difficult as time goes on. And she does this great thing where she films a drinking game, which is sort of a mainstay of, you know, any Asian wedding or party. She films a drinking game where the camera keeps swinging around a round table to whoever's turn it is to respond. And this guy, because he's all drunk, to be fair, and racked with emotion about the fact that he can't tell anyone that his grandma's dying, he keeps losing and he keeps drinking. And then in order to indicate that everybody has got drunk and at least this guy is a casualty of the game, she just spins the camera on its axis. So it's spinning round and round and round around this group until it sort of blurs off into the next section of the film. And it's these kind of touches that to me identify Lulu Wang as like a major talent as a director. And then this story is just one that it doesn't matter that a large part of it's in Mandarin and subtitled because 
<laughs> it needs to be seen by more people. Later on, we'll talk about overlooked films. I hope this isn't an overlooked film. And I wanted to add one more thing, Paul, and then I promise I'll stop talking. <laughs> and that is that The Farewell currently holds a 99% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, right? And that's a metric that we know is fundamentally flawed. But yep. when I saw that, I thought... Who's the 1%? <laughs> Who's the 1%? And I've looked it up, Paul. It's a write-up by The Mail on Sunday right. who said, given that this movie is about Chinese tradition and largely in Mandarin, why is it being given a push? And that, for me, wow. sums up as well as anything else wow. uh, why <laughs> that paper is a rag that is not fit to, you know, clean your shoes with. So, uh, yeah, The Farewell is fantastic. Um, I can't say enough good things. I wish I could talk about frustratingly, it more. Uh, frustratingly, where you got married is a cinema in the town in which I live in. And I've missed this film at the cinema because it's not on anymore. So I'm kicking myself now. So I'm going to have to find a way to watch it before the end of the year. I'm very I, excited, Pete. So thank you. Yeah. Well, we've, <laughs> now that they're, of course, since Sundance, now that A24 are on board, I'm sure that, you know, in due course, there will be good distribution of yeah. physical and streaming media and stuff like oh, that. For so, sure, yeah, yeah. yeah, don't miss out. You and, of course, everybody else listening, if any of that sounded good. Um, Talking of things that sound good, Paul, in just a moment, we will be back with a section of the show that we call Coming Attractions, where we look ahead to the good and maybe not so good films that are coming out in the week ahead, right after this. So Coming Attractions is the section of the show, my favourite section of the show, because Pete does all the legwork for this and then throws things my way. Maybe we should change this up, how it works next week. We, you know, maybe, maybe. Well, well um, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, man. We'll, we'll start out with a film where I'm not really going to say anything and then you can you can take the bat on. So okay. <laughs> uh, the, the big Behemoth film that's coming out this week, uh, in fact, I think it previews today and then we'll be rolling out Thursday. So this is Wednesday. The We're recording on Wednesday the 23rd. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Recording on the 23rd. So by the time you listen to this, it will be available wide at the cinema this is terminator dark fate uh terminator dark fate for anyone who's not aware is the latest installment of the terminator franchise that started all those many years ago and we've talked about recently directed by one tim miller paul tell me what are you thinking how are you feeling about terminator coming back and having one last potential hurrah before arnie really is too old to do this shit <laughs> I mean, I, I love the first two Terminator films. As I said, we talked about them on the show a while ago. We did the double bill, which is incredible, um, which which was great. Um, the sequels have been uh, a mixed bag of shit, uh, in, in all honesty. Um, Terminator 3 uh, has some good set pieces. Salvation was directed by McGee. Um, and Terminator Genesis uh, had um, Jay, Jai Courtney in it. So um, there's other things wrong with those films, but that's kind of the highlight of, of the problems with the sequels. So the sequels haven't been great. However, I've always had a soft spot for the, the kind of robot design of the Terminator. 12-year-old Paul is always excited to see Terminators on the screen because they are such, like Stan Winston's design of them was inc was absolutely fantastic at the time. So um, yeah, it's a very cool movie monster and Schwarzenegger's always value for money in my opinion. Um, so yeah, with that, but with the basis on the fact there's been so many sequels, I'm cautiously optimistic about this one, I think. Um, some of the early reviews seem to be fairly positive, which is which is nice for a change. Um, and the director of Deadpool, hopefully he can bring some humour to it. Um, some humour to it that I think has been, well, not missing, just badly handled in the other films, um, in the other sequels. And also, I like kind of like the fact that this is serving as a direct sequel to Terminator 2, so it basically ignores... Um, the other sequels and picks up exactly where Terminator 2 left. And a badass looking Linda Hamilton's back again. 
and and a so, pretty badass looking Mackenzie Davis in this one yes. as well. Which yeah, she's, I'm, I'm Mackenzie Davis seems to have spent some time in the gym before the making of this film. I think it would be fair to say. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I'm I'm quietly confident for this one to be honest. I don't think I don't think it will be that bad. I don't think it will be that bad. <laughs> a glowing preview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But to be honest, where we're at with Terminator at, at the moment, that's probably you know pretty generous generous praise for what it what it looks to be. So uh, it's also out on limited release this week. I should mention, by the grace of God, the reason to bring this up is because it was on my most anticipated of the remaining uh, months of the year when we did that in the middle of the year around yes. sort of June July time. This one is from director Francois Ozon um, that people will know from stuff like the new girlfriend and swimming pool and so on and so forth. The kind of director that once you get in, if that's your kind of thing you're probably going to search out all of the films i'm one of those guys paul are you excited about the grace of sorry by the grace of god by the grace of god yes i think in the house was the last film i watched by those on i don't i haven't seen all of his work admittedly but that i very much enjoyed that um so that was is that was that true is that a film by him or i just made that up yeah it is yeah yeah yeah. from from maybe five years ago i'm quite tired today you can probably tell can't you um, yeah no i'm uh no i'm excited yeah i'm excited for this and it's on curzon which makes it a lot easier to watch because i don't need to leave leave the house to see it which is quite nice sometimes so yeah lovely stuff yeah Yeah, (laughs) currently holding an 80 uh, on metacritic as well so promising signs we've also got one that i would put under the category not so promising but other opinions are available this is the beach bum from a provocateur slash director slash writer Harmony Kareen. Um, this one is uh, tells the story of a rebellious stoner named Moondog who lives life by his own rules because of course that's what it's about. Uh, the central character is played by Matthew McConaughey supported by the likes of Isla Fisher and Snoop Dogg. Paul, are you a Harmony Kareen acolyte? Do you care about uh, this man? More than you, I think, to be fair. I, quite, I rather enjoyed Spring Breakers and I... Was it... No, Bubba. I quite, is it Bubba? Was it? Oh, what was it called? I'm sure it's called Bubba. Gummo. Gummo, not Bubba. That's the one. Gummo. And I, I quite liked Gummo. In fairness, I haven't seen Trash Humpers, which you kind of, <laughs> you, you would like me to avoid. I think from your your thoughts on Trash Humpers, but um, yeah, I'm. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I'm. I'm a fully signed up acolyte. I think he does have some issues um, as a filmmaker, but I quite as I said I rather enjoyed Spring Breakers. So I'm kind probably more keen on this than you are. To be fair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Trash Humpers, I think, is a sort of way to encapsulate what Harmony Kareen's all about as a filmmaker. Um, and not in a good way. Uh, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens with, with that one. I like Matthew McConaughey. It's not all bad. Um, also out, we have, again, a limited release, as far as we know, is uh, Monos, which was another one that I think got a mention when we were doing the preview of anticipated films the year ahead. Uh, Monos drops over the weekend, um, I believe, yeah, it would be Friday, depending on when we release. Uh, on a remote mountaintop, eight kids with guns watch over a hostage and a conscripted milk cow. Um, interesting stuff. And I'll tell you something, Paul. I remember that I think both of us had seen the trailer and it looked really, really visually striking, this movie. Yeah, um, yeah you're anticipating good things, I think, right? Yeah, no, I'm very excited for this one, to be honest. If I can find it, find it on locally. I mean, it can probably be on Bristol, to be fair. So I may, I may venture, the kind of thing I may venture across for to make sure I get to see it this year because the buzz around this has been has been great and I think it, it could well be based on the trailer I think it could well be a contender for one of the best films of the year so we shall see we shall see but yeah excited for that one a couple more to round off then we've got uh, the last ma- uh, the last black man in San Francisco this one getting quite a bit of buzz it seems to me judging by my Twitter timeline anyway uh, this is from director Joe Tolbert who acts as writer director on this thing um, along with Jimmy Fails I believe on, on writing duties um, 
in terms of a synopsis, what I have, a young man searches for home in the changing city that seems to have left him behind. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't got loads of details. Promising is what I can say about that until we get our eyes on it, you know, for, for ourselves. And then we are left with one more, which is, ah, yes, of course, squeeze this one in. Netflix um, are releasing this weekend Rattlesnake, which stars uh, Carmen Ajogo, who just celebrated her birthday. Happy birthday. We put a thing out on Instagram. Uh, this one <laughs> tells us tells the story of a single mother who accepts the help of a mysterious woman after her daughter is bitten by a rattlesnake. She finds herself making an unthinkable deal with the devil to repay the stranger. Intriguing stuff. It may end up being one of those sort of, like we were talking about, I think last week, three out of five stars, sort of <laughs> pretty decent Netflix uh, releases. But we'll see. And Carmen Ajoga is an actress that I like a lot and I think is underpraised. And that's why I you know, drew attention to her the other day on our on our socials. Um, interest here, Paul, I mean, you'll watch this, I'd imagine. Because I will watch this. I didn't really know much about this, to be honest, because I said Netflix play their cards quite close to their chest at times. So I will check this out. As I said, it's not an actress I'm familiar with, I don't think, um, looking at that Instagram feed. So I will I will check it out for sure. I think we're missing one, though. Is there an incredible-looking horror film called Countdown not out this week as well, if I remember rightly? Do, um, do you know stuff about it? Tell me I about do know it, a little bit about Countdown. Um, it looks hilariously bad. Uh, basically, there is an app um, that you get that tells people when they die um, oh of course the, yeah, yeah but the app the seems to have potentially a supernatural element to it um and the film does have the tagline the the only good thing about this film does seem like the tagline which seems to be death there's an app for that which i quite like the yeah. tagline uh, more than anything else the film looks awful um but could be yeah i may i may yet go <laughs> yeah this feels a bit like sort of uh from the producer of yeah. final destinations cousin yeah. or whatever you know uh but but we'll see i yeah i've, I've seen the trailer a few times and i'd forgotten about <laughs> yeah. that movie cool uh, that brings us to the end of coming attractions which means that we will be back in just a moment of the, with the section of the show that we call feature reviews and today in fact singular feature review because we're going to focus on just one film and it's one that's available to anyone on the netflix platform it is called wounds and we will talk about it right after this So yeah, as, as Pete said, this is one feature review this week, which is the film Wounds. It's a Netflix uh, Netflix exclusive release, certainly in this country. I think it was originally a Hulu production in stateside, if I remember rightly. I, I might be mistaken. Uh, but this is directed by the Iranian director Babak Anvari. Pete, set this one up for us. So you, you listeners may know from the superb Under the Shadow was his, was his previous horror film. Yeah, and Br British Iranian Babak Anvari. Oh, okay. Lives in the UK, as far as I know. Right. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Under the Shadow was Ace, and it was like this kind of breakout that we'd not sort of seen anything about and then both were really into I think and talked about yeah, on the show so yeah. once you see that Netflix are rolling out this guy's new film yeah I think the two of us were, were right on it in, in terms of when we we jumped into our first viewing um so what we have here is the story of a man who seems to be falling apart at the seams. Um, he works in and seemingly sort of co-runs or helps to run a bar. That bar, at even the outset of the film, is suffering from a cockroach infestation problem that seems to just be an incidental detail at that point. The man in question is played by Army Hammer that you'll know as the Winklevosses in uh, the social network and uh, of course uh, the the guy who was uh, the object of desire in Call Me By Your Name. Uh, here he is supported by Zazie Bates who plays seemingly a love interest 
possibly an old flame of his who rolls into the bar with regularity to uh, basically do shots and get hammered. But she at the time is dating a character played by Carl Glusman, uh, Zoe Kravitz, real life husband. It's a little bit of uh, trivia for you there. I didn't know that. Yeah. uh, And so what we've got is uh, a small story, it seems, about a man who's struggling, yeah, as I say, to hold his himself together, to retain his sanity. At the same time, he's in uh, what should be a committed relationship, but his partner seems to spend a lot of her time at home. And when they're together, the atmosphere is frosty, I would say, at best. Um, and that character played by Dakota Johnson of course from the 50 shades franchise and elsewhere much better places like a bigger splash and stuff that you should care yeah. about more um yes before we get into our thoughts on wounds and whether Babak and Vari has gone from first strength to indeed strength uh, let's hear a little clip ready there's no way <laughs> this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. That's uh-huh. that's actually impressive. Cough it up, baby. Okay. I'm gonna give you five. I don't know how you do it, man. I'm just blessed. Mm. Thank you for contributing to my slush fund. Jesus. Dude, this place is so disgusting. Don't trash the bar. It's just bugs. You should get an exterminator. Yeah, that's above my pay grade. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> You're such an asshole! So, for me, Pete, the, the key thing that any horror film has to do is establish an atmosphere, establish it quickly, and maintain that atmosphere. And for me, just from the outset, this film did that incredibly well. From all, from the opening moments to the very end, I was on edge in this film. It, it made me feel uneasy, it made me feel slightly disturbed, and I didn't always know what was going on. And in this case, I thought it was a good thing. I think that's a good jumping-off point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's important to say then, as a tag on that, that part of that atmosphere, I would say a a big part of that atmosphere, comes down to the fact that Anvari puts underneath the majority of this film this sort of um, sub-soundtrack of sort of Lynchian noises. (laughs) Under a a load of stuff, where sometimes you think, like you were saying, you don't always know what's going on. Sometimes I was thinking, like, you don't even know why that noise is there. But it makes even (laughs) mundane sequences. The guy might go to the fridge and get out some milk or something but when underneath that you've got you think oh my god this is going somewhere horrible uh yes i think it is a good jumping off point because the atmosphere created is is palpable and uncomfortable and there's always a sense of impending threat and possible doom um in terms of plot the movie moves really between two locations, doesn't it? It moves between the yeah. bar and uh, Army Hammer and Dakota Johnson's apartment. Uh, like I said in the intro, where they're living what seems to be a fairly loveless relationship. Um, she is trying to finish her... I think she's doing like a dissertation or thesis or something like that at the time, right? Um, and I think that loosely ties into the obsessions that exist with um, the Army Hammer, uh, Army Hammer character here and then he is basically just doing hours at the bar getting drunk at the bar rolling home from the bar 
and trying to convince his partner that he's basically not like hooking up with people left, right and centre in the capacity as a guy working in a bar. Then, though, we have an important sequence of events where a fight breaks out in the bar whilst a group of potentially underage youngsters are filming on a phone um, and Army Hammer's character after the incidents of this fight and a guy getting a pretty horrible wound to the neck from a a glass bottle (laughs) he finds a phone from one of these kids takes it home uses a fairly nifty technique to figure out how to get into the phone and then sees things that are uh, at least at first a little unsettling and then increasingly (laughs) very, very (laughs) unpleasant and and, and probably quite illegal um, on that phone. So, yeah, in terms of setting atmosphere, you're absolutely right. I think that atmosphere is set up well. I suppose my question to fire back would be, do you think that Anvari manages to sustain not just the atmosphere, but the plot in a way that was interesting to you throughout the runtime? Uh, yes, in all, and, and I'll be honest, I I genuinely loved this movie. I thought it was I thought it was fantastic, and for me, I thought it was almost a match for Under the Shadow. In all honesty, um, because it's this the kind of film where I can see I can see people's criticisms on the plot, and I have read a number of criticisms. I do seem to be in a, a minority, a smaller group that really like this film, um, and I can see people's criticisms, and I can understand people's people's criticisms. But sometimes, for me with horror like this for it to for it to make me ask questions for it to keep me on edge is enough for me for it to be a successful horror film in its own right so yeah there are some limitations there the plot isn't always clear as to where it's going i can i can say that for for certain i think also army hammer's performance i think is really good in this i thought this is this is one of the best performances i've seen from him i thought um and i think i think and that that really helps but no, the plot isn't always clear as to where it's going. The film, you know, is, I would say, almost deliberate. I think it's de- certainly deliberately vague um, in terms of exactly what's going on. I mean, there's there's some kind of, there's kind of a, a cult, a cult sort of, an occult cult, for want of a better word, is alluded to and sort of passages into, passages into other dimensions are alluded to and never fully explained. I can see why people would be frustrated with that, but I liked the fact it wasn't explained. And it, at times, I'll be honest, this kind of this kind of evoked a film that I'm going to come to later, which is Andrzej Zywalski's uh, Possession uh, from 1981. And I think there's there's a lot of parallels to that, and certainly with some of the closing scenes. I think um, in terms of the, like the kind of, the kind of whole mood of the film, I think it had a very very possession mood about it, as did Under the Shadow in places. I think as well. So for me, I absolutely love this. Yeah, I, I think it evoked for me the idea that you gave um, someone or maybe a combination of sort of David Lynch uh, and maybe William Friedkin uh, the yeah. opportunity to direct an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> and this this is what you get as the sort of hellish outcome of that um, that yeah marriage. Um, yeah, I mean, also, I think what Anvari is really good at is individual scenes. There's a sequence where Dakota Johnson's character is at home on her own when her partner, army hammer returns and finds her uh seemingly completely catatonic staring at her laptop screen and then there's a detail that i won't spoil here but there's a detail about her condition at that time that's exactly the kind of thing that really gets under my skin when it comes to sort of psychological horror stuff because for me one of the scariest elements that you could have in psychological horror is just people acting in ways that people shouldn't act Mm -hmm. um and and ways that make you worry about people just 
sort of a very basic yeah. human human level. Uh, so yeah, I found some of those sequences really really effective, and I think this guy is very very talented. I would say my come back on sort of all the positives that you said about this movie and it, and it's just a maybe slight difference of opinion because like I say I, I liked the movie is that I felt maybe that it it well I think you alluded to it like it didn't necessarily know what to do with what it had what mm. it's one of those films that feels like an amazing short film um, and then maybe at feature length either needs to be longer or maybe slightly rearranged. I don't know. Because it builds all this atmosphere, but then it's almost like you've got all this atmosphere, you don't know what to do with it, so you sort of blow it up at the end. And don't get me wrong, he blows it up in a tremendous yeah. way. A, <laughs> the a tremendous shot. way. The closing yeah. shot is one of the best horror scenes of the year, I think, and I'm not... I will stand yeah. by that. I think the closing shot is fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> and, and there's, you know, there's because there's all this sort of interesting subtextual stuff going on, because of course wounds in the movie are going to be an allusion to something else, and I think it's plain to see from early on that we're looking here at the sort of uh, degraded psyche of a man who basically has no soul or his soul yeah. is sort of disappearing with every passing shot of tequila right like in under the shadow we were looking at through the frame of mother and child in a crumbling apartment the horror of war like an external threat in this case it's an internal threat it's a guy destroying himself and the consequence of him destroying himself and sort of destroying his own life so that was really interesting and i suppose i feel like i either wanted less of it or i wanted more of it mm. and what, what we get is somewhere in the middle um and so yeah it, it maybe it doesn't feel like it fully explores its themes before everything comes to this spectacular end and then i was left with this feeling at the end of the movie like i'm not sure that i really loved that movie but man it went out with a bang like yeah. it went out with yeah. such a bang at the end so uh, i've got love for that i think there's a lot to be said about movies that just just know how to finish rather yeah. than sort of man does this know how to finish like it doesn't it uh... doesn't do that thing you know like when you listen to bad music i often think like the sign of bands who produce sort of bad singles is they don't know how to finish so they just fade them out yeah <laughs> just fade it out just keep doing yeah. the same refrain and fade it out oasis used to do this with like every song fade it out because we've played the same song for seven minutes for some reason <laughs> fade it out and in this case Amvari doesn't do that at all yeah just blows it up lovely stuff and like you said strong performances as well i would say that the zazi bates and particularly the uh, carl glusman character seemed like really weirdly underdeveloped in terms of Carl Glusman has so little to do here that he just sort of mm. wanders in, looks a bit sulky, uh, yeah, flounces about a bit, leans on the bar. I I wanted more because this is a guy who was in, you know, love for Gaspar Noé and like has has done bigger stuff. And I know he's a supporting role in the movie, but like it felt a bit incidental that he was even there. Mm. Um, and, and almost I didn't buy that relationship at all. The Zazie Bates Carl Glusman relationship to be fair you you totally buy that this guy behind the bar who's unbelievably handsome when he's not yeah. you know haggard <laughs> to within yeah. an inch of his life you are you definitely believe that there could be history between him and Zazie Bates but maybe not the other relationship it kind of made me think a little bit weirdly of um Colossal as well not in the sense of all the stuff okay. that happens but just yeah. in the sense that you, you had the character in that as well, who well you've got of, the character in the bar I guess yeah, there, yeah. yeah there's definitely parallels to Colossal I hadn't thought of that at the time but yeah I'd say that's a, that's a fair parallel but well and, and yeah, that's no. That's a movie that deals again with all the psychology around sort mm. of uh, drinking yourself to, to, you know, drinking yourself stupid, I guess. So, yeah. Yeah. A lot to recommend it, though. Definitely. I may not be as fully two thumbs up on board as you are, but I definitely like the movie and I think more people should see it. 
yeah, no, and I said for me, it's, it's, a, it's a strong two thumbs up recommendation for sure. Um, it might even bother my end of the year list. I'll, I'll be, I'll be honest. I, it, it grabbed me that much. And again, I will, I will hasten, I will hark back to what I said at the beginning. Is it's all about for me in horror films. It's all about atmosphere. And if you get the atmosphere and sustain the atmosphere, I will forgive a lot. And this has it in spades. So mm. highly recommended from me. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, you can cycle back to it for a second viewing, of course, before we get to the end of the year because yeah. it's available on Netflix. So yeah. anybody listening to this who's interested in all this this business that we're talking about here, uh, by all means check it out for yourself, form your own opinion, and then um yeah, in due course, I guess we'll find out whether it did it did indeed make that that top ten list. But I said there at the end, Paul, uh, this is the kind of film that I think needs more viewership. It needs people not to look at what is a very middling set of critical opinions at the moment. I think we're somewhere around the 50, 55 yeah. mark in terms of Metacritic for, for wounds. More people need to see it. We don't want it to be overlooked. So we got our thinking caps on again as we do. And we thought, how can we beautifully segue into a top five? So what we've got for this week is our top five, which is overlooked horror movies you see what we've done there <laughs> and we will be back with our top five overlooked horror movies right after this so yeah top five overlooked horror movies so basically when we kind of put this list together we were kind of thinking okay well as you've as you've mentioned before the break peak wounds we don't think enough people will get to see it's kind of been dumped out on netflix with not much exposure um and this is other films basically that have had in fact i've watched most of these on streaming services i think weirdly enough um so yeah this is films that we think deserve a wider audience um so shall i jump in at my number five do it right this is a 2014 irish horror film called the canal um directed by ivan kavanagh um basically uh what i like about this was the kind of the the premise of this film is a depressed and stressed film archivist finds his sanity crumbling after he's given an old 16 millimeter film with her with footage of a horrific murder from the early 1900s and kind of he gets more and more wrapped up in this murder and what's been going on um and it happens to be by a canal hence why the film's called the canal um and the film gets darker and darker and darker as as as, he, as the guy starts to lose his sanity um rupert evans is the star here who's not an actor i don't I've, i can honestly say i don't think i've seen in in much else um ivan cameron has made other horror films i haven't seen them but yeah this for me I, I talked about i talked about before the break i talked about horror films having atmosphere this again for me is a film that starts out creepy and maintains its atmosphere all, all the way through um and there's some great really fucked up visual visual scenes in it this film does go very very dark um gets very very twisted towards the end so i really really like this film i thought it was a very very pleasant surprise for me have you seen this people you know what as you describe it i don't think so i think i remember you recommending it and i think the name the the director's name rings a bell but i don't think i have okay. i'll have to check but yeah I, I should get round to it if if indeed i haven't seen yeah it. yeah check it out so that's my number five is the canal directed by ivan Kavanagh. pete number five for me then paul is a director that i think we're both fairly fond of at nowadays but this is an effort from back in 2009 the director is ty west and the movie is the house of the devil um the house of the devil is one of those that just was really sad satisfying to me because it kind of did everything I wanted it to do. Uh, a pair of girls who are trying to basically get enough money to make rent. One of them, Greta Gerwig, by the way, in a fairly early role. Um, they see the opportunity to do a babysitting gig that's weirdly overpaid at a giant house. <laughs> the one girl who turns up for the gig is then told, well, there's only one small catch. We don't actually have a baby. All you've got to do, or a child indeed, uh, all you've got to do is basically stay in the house overnight and then you get paid, I think, four or five hundred dollars. She can't believe her luck. 
What could possibly be the catch? Well, the catch could be that this movie is called The House of the Devil. <laughs> but what's so good about the movie is it's just really efficient with its scares, with its presentation, with its opening. And talking about the Amfari movie Wounds just a second ago in the feature, this is a film that when it ends, it just kind of slaps you around the face and goes like, yeah, that's the end. It's It's got a kind of throwback aesthetic to 1970s horror movies, I would say, that I really appreciate and a real swagger about mm, it. And absolutely. this is made by Ty West when he was 26 or something ridiculous like that. So, yeah, a, a really pretty pretty strong achievement. I might be wrong about that, but he was definitely within his 20s at the point that the, the film came out. Uh, yeah, really like it. And you've seen it as well, Paul. I think. Yeah, I love this film. I thought it was fantastic. Ty West is one of my, I'd say, favourite, for want of a better word, indie indie horror filmmakers for sure he may have another film on my list pete we'll wait we'll, we'll, we will wait and see <laughs> nice what have you got a number four uh, and number four i've got the void uh from 2016 directed by jeremy G- gillespie and stephen kostanaski kostanaski sorry um this is um a very 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 bizarre uh and messed up film um with some incredible practical effects in it um i'd say it's sort of kind of like from beyond or the kind of um um, the kind of those kind of things, or like reanimator, or that kind of stuff. It kind of harks back to those, and there's a kind of a Hellraiser vibe to some of the stuff that's going on. So, um, yeah. So to, to to quote IMDb, shortly after delivering a patient to an understaffed hospital, a police officer experiences strange and violences violent occurrences, seemingly linked to a ga- a group of mysterious hooded figures. So, yeah, there's a lot of occult activity going on here. The the story starts out well. It starts out like it's going to go in. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A fairly sort of straight straight down the line sort of thriller, horror, mystery kind of thing. And then it goes bananas, absolutely bananas towards the end. As I said, the, the practical effects are incredible. Like the, the Hellraiser vibe is all over this in terms of that kind of thing. There's a very Clive Barker feel. That's the, that's the name I was looking for before. There's a very Clive Barker feel to this. The film looks incredible and it's just, yeah, it's absolutely bananas. And I had a great time with it. Nice. Again, it's another one that I've seen pop up on lists and stuff like that and in recommendations but haven't caught up with so i should at number what are we now uh four for me it it was going to be a two-way tie paul but i didn't want to like make you angry and cheat (laughs) so i'm gonna give a mention to the film that was going to be at number four which is taxidermia an absolutely bananas movie from Gilgi palfi from 2006 the reason i haven't put it at number four albeit i'm talking about it now is because i don't think i can explain it (laughs) it's listed on the imdb as a comedy drama horror right um if you know, you know. If you've seen it, you won't forget. But that's taxidermia. The one I'm going to go for is A Tale of Two Sisters from 2003. Um, this one is one of a clutch of Korean movies that, to be completely honest, played a big part in me moving for three years of my life to South Korea. So um, it, it's responsible for a lot. Uh, and so too is its director, Ji Won Kim. A Tale of Two Sisters I've put on this list, not because it didn't get decent distribution. It was distributed by Tartan over here. People who are into that kind of thing saw it. I just feel like when people nowadays talk about uh, J-horror and uh, and K-horror and that sort of new wave from Japan and Korea, not many people talk about A Tale of Two Sisters. And I think that's a shame because it's a movie that is so meticulously designed. Um, The director has put so much care into sort of the colour grading of different areas of the house. It tells this story 
story of uh, two sisters, as you could imagine, uh, who return to uh, a summer home with their father and stepmother. And they spend a period of time there and things go from sort of frosty between them and their stepmother to um, just outright kind of murderous and creepy. And all of the time, just like in many of the best horror films and psychological horror films, there feels like there's something a bit wrong. Um, Apart from the events that we see on screen, we know that underneath the surface, there's a bit more happening. And this is um, brilliantly brought to... um, brought into reality or or brought into being I should say by the director where he does things like a bit like uh, Lynch in Eraserhead Mm. where there's like a hand that's underneath a cupboard and it's all kind of um, slow camera movements and silence and anticipation and a real building sense of fear. But then on the one hand, he can do that kind of a jumpy scare. And on the other hand, he's got like human horror. One of the girls, these girls are young teenagers, I believe. One of the girls uh, suffers a period that comes on during the nighttime and wakes up horrified with her own body. So there's like a deafness to the way in which the director unsettles the audience on different fronts I would say in in this movie it all ends in a way that might be a little bit divisive but at the first viewing back in what 2003 or 4 I was just blown away I've heard great things about this and never caught up with it so I will um I will add that to my list for sure yeah yeah it's definitely keep hearing great things so it's definitely one of those that the less you know the better like I've set it up a little bit and there's no good in saying anything more because you really have to see it and it's the kind of film that if you dig a little bit you'll easily find on DVD and or maybe a a Blu-ray release at this point so yeah uh, Tale of Two Sisters from 2003 is my number four what is number three for you Paul? Uh, This is another film by Ty West Um, I very nearly put House of the Devil in actually but I thought that that got more exposure than this film, um, which I believe is sitting on Netflix somewhere at the moment, this is um, The Sacrament, uh, which is, as I said, another Thai West film starring uh, Joe Swanberg, AJ Bowen. Uh, Joe Swanberg and AJ Bowen are probably the two biggest names in this. Joe Swanberg, famous for Mumblecore, if I'm quite correct there, Pete. This is a genre you're probably more familiar that's, with than me. That's what people would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Um, this is, um, this basically is kind of like a, it's kind of found footage, if I remember rightly. Um, a news team trails a man as he travels to the world of Eden Parish to find his missing sister, where it becomes apparent that the paradise may not be as it seems. So that was kind of a bit of a poor setup from IMDb there to be honest because Eden Paris is the home to a cult that his sister that his main character sister has joined um, and they go and basically try and rescue her from a cult um, if you think you've seen films that skew dark um, you probably haven't until you've seen The Sacrament because the way the where this goes it's just Ty West um, I, yeah he's, he makes some very dark horror films and he makes no apology he makes no apology for this The Sacrament for me was was tense from the get-go again very atmospheric and I just loved I just loved how dark it went it took it takes no prisoners and it's a cracking cracking highly entertaining horror from again a director Ty West I happen to think is very underrated nice yeah it's one that I've seen and like you I think I was kind of torn a few ways between a couple of notable younger horror directors or indie horror directors and I went for House the Devil but equally yeah yeah, Sacraments are one to watch for sure at number three for me then is a film by a very established director but I would argue very much an overlooked work from that director. I'm talking about the film Bug from 2006. This movie directed by William Friedkin, which anybody with even a passing interest in film knows, of course, is the director of The Exorcist, amongst other things. Uh, But I don't think many people actually took 
notice of bug it screened in uh, on limited release i believe at the time um, i managed to catch a screening when it came out back then in in 2006 and i felt very very lucky to have done that because this was one of those movies where i walked out of the cinema just overwhelmed with how much i loved what he'd done with this material it's based on a screenplay from tracy letts who's written tons of stuff august osage county included that i talked mm. about recently but uh it stars ashley judd and michael shannon and what we have is a very simple setup. Have you seen Bug? No. Okay. You've mentioned Michael Shannon no. uh, and William Freaking, so I'm in. No, I like it because each time we throw to each other and go, have you seen this? And the other person says Normally no. Yes. It, yeah. it, yeah. No, but it, better, yeah. it underlines the credentials of the, the entry on this yes. list. I think. Yeah, overlooked. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, Michael Shannon in the movie is this guy who presents himself in a, in a small community in the South in America where Ashley Judd lives as uh, at a local bar, I think they meet first of all, as a guy with a sort of mysterious past that he later reveals to be according to him um, military in in nature and very quickly there's an attraction between the two of them but attraction that seems to be based not just on a sort of surface level physicality and the fact that they're lonely although I think those things play a a factor the fact that they're drinking also important in a lot of couplings I I believe but the fact that both of them need the other for particular reasons they fulfill some sort of requirement that they have at that time Ashley Judd lives alone she invites Shannon's character back to her house and they have one of those sort of naught to a hundred relationships where suddenly they're inseparable and very quickly she's welcomed this guy into her home and he's started to influence the way that she understands the world he tells her about his past he tells her certain things that he believes to be secret truths that other people are not aware of about the military about wider society about the american government and because she's so infatuated with this guy she takes all these things at face value and allows herself to become sort of inextricably bonded to him it turns out that perhaps this character is a little bit crazy uh, in some way or maybe he's just a guy who is uh, who has been through so much that he's got some form of sort of PTSD either way the name of the film bug refers to the fact that the two of them jolt awake one night when Ashley Judd f- believes that she is covered in bugs and then Shannon explains why that is Uh, that's all I can say. Bug is fantastic. In fact, there was somebody on Twitter who put up a a post saying, you know, what's a a film that not enough people have seen? And under the, the stranger's handle, I put out a thing just saying bug and there were a load of replies from people saying oh my god bug is so good what a film people oh, okay, need to see nice. it so yeah uh, a big recommendation from me um 2000 and what did i say 2006 uh, bug from william freakin get on it if you like stuff like that what's number two for you paul uh, number two for me is kind of two films i'm kind of cheating here well we'll go with we'll go with the first one although the second one is arguably better but we'll go with creep uh, directed by Patrick Bryce, starring Mark Duplass, which I knew you put me on to, Pete, if mm. I remember rightly. Um, starring Mark Duplass. Um, it's a film about a young videographer answering an online ad for a one-day job in a remote town to record the last messages of a dying man, played here by a very, very creepy and clearly having a great time Mark Duplass. Um, he notices the man's behaviour is somewhat odd and starts to question his intentions. 
So, yeah, this is a very tight and effective horror, I think. It clocks in at 1 hour 17 minutes, so surprisingly short, which is not always a bad thing, to be honest, for horror films. Um, and I think it's a film, it's very well put together, it's very atmospheric, and certainly has an incredible, and I'd say Mark Duplass playing a different type of character than we've normally see, seen him play, um, as a very, very creepy man in this film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or the kind of, again, like the Shadow World version of Jeff Who Lives at Home, or something yeah. like that. <laughs> That's a good. That's a good way of putting it. To be fair, yeah, yeah. No, it's just it's just a fantastically tight, tightly made horror film. Kind of, and again, the found footage perspective is something I thought I was sick and tired of and done with um, until this. Until I watched this, I think I watched it. It did come out in twenty fourteen, but I think I watched it maybe probably a year or two ago, maybe a bit longer than that. Uh, and the was, sequels come out. Was the but... other film Creep Two? Yes. Yeah. 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 B- because I think it's yeah. fair enough. Put them together because Desiree Akivan's in the second one, and she's great. Yeah, and she's so... brilliant in that. Yeah. Yeah, so there's the the second one, arguably superior to the first one, I think, in in some parts. But yeah, if you haven't seen them, they are both on Netflix because they're certainly Netflix releases this side of the pond anyway. So um, well worth checking those out if you haven't seen them. So Creep and Creep 2 is my number two. Number two for me then is, again, I would say a relatively, relatively established director, but a film that I don't hear a great deal of people talking about. Maybe I don't talk to the right or slash wrong people. Uh, Number two for me is Climax from Gaspar Noé, released in 2018, just last year, and that I caught up with at the beginning of this year, a bit later than the, the coolest of kids. You'd already seen it, hadn't you, Paul? I was on that call list, yeah. You were on the call list, yeah. (laughs) And the reason this gets on here, you know, people might read the synopsis of this movie and think, how does this qualify for overlooked uh, horror films? Well, first of all, because it's been overlooked and not enough people see it, have seen it or or talk about it. But secondly, because, yes, it's about a dance troupe meeting up in a sort of large cavernous building to practice their moves and then party into the night. But no, it's not step up to the streets or something like that. It is absolutely hellish in a way that I still find sort of flashing into my mind from time to time because the key thing to understand about Climax is that what you have is a group of incredibly talented, incredibly athletic, incredibly vibrant people and into that group of warring egos and skills you have some sort of acid-like drug that drives everybody mental. And then what Gaspar Noé does is he spins his camera all over the shop. Anyone who's watched his movies before knows that you're going to feel car sick by the time you get to the end because of the way this guy moves the camera. But he leaves you in this situation and all you want to do, he keeps looking at doors all the time. All you want to do is go out of the door, but you can't because you're stuck. I mean, you can stop the movie. That is your prerogative. But yeah, I was strapped in for the long run on this one and... I'm not going to incriminate myself too much here, Paul, but there are times in my life where, you know, I've imbibed substances that have made me feel a little bit out of control, you know, a very strong coffee, maybe a Darjeeling tea or something like that. And it's I about feel, as far as I've gone as well. Pete, feel a bit, so yeah, a bit loopy. And so like <laughs> you get that sort of sense memory uh, when you're watching this movie, but then it just goes up and up and up to sort of 11 and beyond. Sophia Bautella is at the centre of it, falling to bits like every Everybody else is here. Someone who has so much poise and so much control over herself in other films, including Step Up to the Streets, incidentally. Uh, And here she is a mess and everybody's a mess. And it's like Noe has had this thought experiment, which is what would happen if we took the id of people to its logical extreme? So the guy who just wants to fuck everybody 
gets to pursue that to death. The guy mm. who's violent gets to pursue that to its logical conclusion. And nobody has any airs or graces or self-control. They've all been stripped away by this set of chemicals that are coursing through their veins. And it is very much a nightmare to behold. Having said that, if you've got a strong stomach and if you prep yourself by knowing who this filmmaker is, I would very much recommend it as a movie, which sounds like yeah. a funny thing to say. I remember when I came out of it, I went to see it at the watershed in Bristol and the watershed have got um, little like little um, cue cards really that you can write a brief review on uh, before you go in. And I was reading the reviews of, of Climax and someone, someone had put, this was tame compared to the parties I used to go to. <laughs> <laughs> Which, which made me laugh, but no, I'm totally with well, that, you on Climax, I but, thought it was great. But Paul, you, you were in Bristol, right, with the watershed? Yeah. Yeah, so of course. I mean, Bristol yeah. drug scene is, is up there with the best of them, I'm, <laughs> I'm led to believe. Um, right, we're up to, I believe, the climax of this top five, which is yes. your number one. Which what, is my number one, which is got? a film I mentioned earlier, because I thought Wounds and the work of Anvari does quite evoke this film quite heavily in places. Uh, this is Possession uh, from 1981, directed by Andrzej Zalowski. Um, this is a one of my absolute favourite horror films, I would say. I think it's an incredible piece of work. Um, so Probably not, not overlooked in certain corners, but I would still say... Sort of people talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre and they talk about The Exorcist. And for me, I think Possession deserves to be up there in those echelons and discussed with those films as kind of an, an absolute classic of its genre. So I would say it's probably, I said it in certain circles it probably is, but I'd say this is not widely enough seen. Um, it certainly won't be for everyone because it's not an easy watch and it makes no effort to be an easy watch. It is a very disturbing film in places. Um, essentially, you've got um, Isabella Gianni plays a character um, married to Sam Neill. Um, who she starts exhibiting disturbing behaviour ask asking her husband after asking her husband for a divorce um, and he thinks he's cheating on her um, but it turns out she might be cheating on him but is, what is she cheating on him with I think would be one of the key questions that this film raises a lot of along with a lot of many other things it is also as much as it at times is a very creepy very atmospheric horror film with some very very uh, overtly scary horror scenes it is also an incredible study of the breakdown of a marriage um, and that the a lot of as much of the horror comes from this disturbing scenes and it does from just the breakdown of a marriage and the performances between uh, Ajani and Sam Neill both of them are fantastic in this so it's a multi-leveled film for, for sure but if you haven't seen it then it is an absolute must watch I think you've seen this Pete I no I haven't Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I'm just okay. looking up details as you talk about it. That turns out the the director, um, you said Zulavsky, died just three years ago, um, in okay. 2016, at, at 75 years old. But no, I haven't seen it. It's a film I'm aware of, and I think yeah. I've heard you talk about it maybe before, but I haven't caught up with it. So if it's got to all the way at number one on this list, then absolutely, no, it is, you know, it's absolutely superb film. Yeah, you should de definitely check it out. I would be remiss if I didn't do that. Yeah, uh, number one for me, Paul, is again we're talking, um, you know, under a appreciated movies overlooked movies and and i've kept to my emerging theme which is a director that everybody knows but a film that i'm <laughs> going to contend right now is underappreciated or overlooked it was the name of our list uh, the director in question is david lynch paul uh, and the the film i'm going to talk about is inland empire because i think that uh, apart from the fact that i'm a massive 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 fan of this film and david lynch and i think that's been documented in the past um I think that this is one which people uh, at large have sort of written off a little bit as, you know, we talk about the, the good old, you know, um, 
the old sort of classic Lost Highway and Blue Velvet and Eraserhead and people trot mm. these out as sort of favourite films. They get on a lot of lists and so on. And then there's this thought, I think, uh, amongst the, the general populace who care about this kind of thing, that Inland Empire was this experiment. It was shot on handheld uh, digital cameras, Lynch sort of turning his back on film. And uh, maybe it's an experiment more than it is a complete project. Um, the All of the stuff about how he didn't have a completed screenplay, so he was making it quote-unquote making up up as he went yeah. along on set um did forget all of that forget all of that forget the people who tell you that this thing needs to be edited down because it runs three hours this is david lynch that we're dealing with and no it absolutely doesn't uh, it needs every minute of its three-hour runtime i will die on that hill um the the film if you ask david lynch about it is simply uh, the story of a woman in trouble and that woman is played by laura dern one of my favorite actresses of all times uh, and this role in inland empire is one of the reasons that i hold her in such sort of high regard um what you've got though not completely unlike Mulholland drive is essentially without digging into everything that this movie represents is essentially somebody trying to piece together their fractured psyche uh after a horrible event and I think that ties it quite neatly to Mulholland Drive. The setting here, though, isn't a sort of broken Hollywood so much as it is a... Uh, well, Laura Dern works as an, an actress. Have you seen this movie before I just blather on it? I have, yeah. I okay. have. I've, yeah. Okay. I've, I've only seen it the once, I think, and I'd liked it at the time. But, it's, uh, yeah, it's about time for a second watch, so, I think. So Laura, Laura Dern, uh, her character applies to work on a film that's called uh, On High and Blue Tomorrows. And uh, she is told, along with her co-star, played by Justin Theroux, that there has been a previous uh, incarnation of this particular production and both of the leads died. So that production came to an end. And it's the first of many sort of hints, big hints by David Lynch that something else is going on here. Um, and it's for listeners to this to unpack what they believe that to be. But the reason it's a horror film is because it's like, it feels to me like a sort of dissociative nightmare a, a dream slash nightmare where you know those dreams where you feel like you have some sense of control and then things just start happening and you don't know why they're happening I recently had a dream where um, I had to run a distance that for some reason I found incredibly difficult maybe because I've been doing a lot of running recently but like it was a short distance but I couldn't run that far and then I realized that my feet really hurt and when I looked at my feet I had tiny pin badges pushed into the the skin on the bottom of my feet and I was running bare feet a uh, barefoot on these badges and all these like different um disparate elements kind of joined into my dream without my control and this is the kind of brain state that david lynch puts you in in a movie like inland empire where instead of you know sitting around with your film studies group and saying like well what do we all think are the meanings here just let it wash over you and let it live in you for a bit and let it kind of hold a mirror up to you and, and see how that feels. It might not feel very good for a while, but then afterwards I think you'll appreciate the exercise. And then, and then of course, you've got the bits that will be clipped on YouTube, like, you know, the, the sort of clown horror version of Laura Dern sprinting towards the camera with a sort of rictus grin on her face. Yeah. And those kind of things will stick with you too. But there's, there's, a, there's a line in the film where Laura Dern says to Justin Theroux, like, don't you remember me? Don't you remember how it was in our relationship? And then everybody in the room looks at her as if she's gone mental like who are you why are you here why are you in this place why are you saying these words like a kind of alzheimer's nightmare and she says i don't ca i don't know i don't care it's something more this film is something more and that it 
for this, the purposes of this list is a horror film, but I could put it on a bunch of other lists as well, I think. Yeah, I, I won't do that because it'd be really annoying for people <laughs> listening to me go on about it all the time. But please give it the time. If you're at least if you're a person who likes David Lynch films that you've seen and has thought ah, maybe this is too much of an undertaking, it's going to be a big undertaking. You need to give it time and consideration, but it's so worth it. So worth it. That's Inland Empire from 2006. The last time David Lynch made a feature film, Single Tear Falls Down My Face. Um, that brings us to the end of our top fives, uh, Paul, does it not? Uh, do you want to just run down quickly what your top five yes. was? So at number five, I had The Canal, directed by Ivan Kavanagh from 2014. At number four, I had The Void, directed by Jeremy Gillespie and Stephen Kostansky uh, from 2016. Uh, number three, The Sacrament, directed by Ty West from 2013. And Creep 1 and Creep 2. Uh, Creep 1 came out in 2015, directed by Patrick Bryce. And then at number one, I had Possession from 1981, directed by Andres Z- Zulowski. Um, that was my top five overlooked horror films. At number five for me, then I had The House of the Devil, also from Ty West. At number four, I didn't have Taxidermia from Georgi Palfi, but I did have <laughs> A Tale of Two Sisters from Kim Ji Woon. At number three was Bug from William Freakin. Number two was Climax from Gaspar Noe. And number one was, of course, David Lynch's Inland, Inland Empire. Uh, it's the empire inside yourself, Paul. Uh, that brings to the, the end our, or brings to an end our top five. We usually do a bit here called um, credits. Do you have anything to give credit to or sort of promote or endorse? I want to give credit week? to you, Pete, for getting this podcast on Spotify. Oh, yes, I did do that. <laughs> yeah. We're available on Spotify now. I'll give credit to that as yeah. well. Not to yeah. myself, but just to the fact that we've wanted to be there for a bit and we finally got ourselves in gear and done it. So, yeah, we're available on Spotify. Please um, subscribe to us there if you prefer that platform. Let people know who might want to listen to the show that it's also available on Spotify, which is absolutely massive and ubiquitous at this point in time. Uh, yeah, we're quite pleased with that. And um, figures for the show are going up and up. Thank you so much for the support. Get in touch with us via Twitter at Strangers Cinema or anywhere else that you see our name on all the socials and and so forth and it really helps you know if people who like the show subscribe to the show so that it lands on your player each week and adds to the momentum of of building the show it's not easy to do there's a lot of people in this particular area if you like what you hear tell us about it subscribe as I say and if you don't like something you hear or you disagree with our opinions because I've written to people who do podcasts telling them (laughs) that they're just factually inaccurate about something that I have to know a lot about uh so i welcome that please do it for us too um and yeah that'll just push us on to bigger and better things i think paul yeah for sure for sure and yeah yeah get in touch basically if you like what you hear tell us if you don't like what you hear tell us right uh, <laughs> i have to go paul because i'm due in the cinema to watch ken loach uh, deliver the actual art of cinema rather than a load of superhero Ooh. nonsense apparently <laughs> so um, well enjoy i'm a bit envious of that actually so yeah So, yes, we will call it a day for now. Until next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Shut up and sit down.